This is Phantom Power. We start out as relational beings, echo, echo, echo. you know, echoing and being echoed. Echo, 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 echo. Echo, echo, the most important relation that we have that models us echo, echo, echo. later on models our relationships with others. Echo, echo, echo. echo is necessarily both, echo, 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 echo. both repetition echo, 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 and response. Hey, and welcome to another episode of Phantom Power, where artists and scholars talk about sound. I'm Mac Haygood, and I want to start off by saying this is episode 50, five, zero. <laughs> uh, it's kind of hard for me to believe. We started this show, uh, my friend Chris Cheek and I, back on March 12th of 2018. And of course, we had actually started working on it back in 2017, and we put out our first episodes in the spring of 2018. That is five years ago. Chris and I parted ways after a couple of seasons. I've kind of been flying solo ever since then, although not really because I've had the amazing support of my friends Amy Sherseth and Ravi Krishnaswamy and my former student, Jason Megacy, who helps out with a lot of the back-end stuff. And um, I just want to express my great gratitude to those folks and to all of you for listening. I've been out in the world again, and I've run into so many people who tell me they listen to the show, um, which is really gratifying. So it's lovely to actually know that real human beings are listening to this show. And, you know, if you wanted to just sort of give us a little 50th episode present, we would totally love it if you would go to ratethispodcast.com slash phantom and just put in a review in your uh, platform of choice. It'll just take you right to your iTunes or wherever you listen and you can just fill out a review. I would love that. It's so meaningful to read what folks have to say about the show. Once again, thanks a lot for listening. I don't want to go on too much longer about this, but it feels good. 50 episodes feels pretty good. And one other thing, while I'm kind of stepping outside the frame here and talking about the show, I just want to say that this will be our last episode of this season. We will take the next three months off and uh, we'll be back with season six in September. All right, on to today's episode. I am very excited about today's episode because I'm talking to Amit Pinchevsky. Amit is professor of communication and journalism at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, where he's been teaching since 2004, after completing doctoral research at McGill University in Canada. Amit's research is about the theory and philosophy of communication and media, and he focuses specifically on the ethics of communication, media witnessing, memory and trauma, and pathologies of communication. Today, we're going to speak about Amit's most recent book, which is simply entitled Echo. 
It's a small book in which Amit proposes that echo is not simply repetition and the reproduction of sameness, but instead echo is an agent of change and a source of creation and creativity. Perhaps more than anything, Pinchevsky suggests that echo is a medium, a medium of connection across time and space and disparate domains. I spoke to Amit for a couple of hours. This is going to be one of those episodes where there's no music, no sound design, no special production. It's just going to be an in-depth conversation about the ideas in Amit's book. So we'll be talking about the physics and the philosophy and the media philosophy of Echo. We're going to go back to ancient debates with the Greeks. We're going to talk about the mythology of Echo and Narcissus, and we're going to talk about the political valences of the way we talk about echo, the way we think about echo and the way we think about repetition. So I'll be presenting about an hour of our conversation here, but if you want to hear the full length conversation with Amit Pinchevsky, join our Patreon. You'll hear us talk about his journey from political science into media theory. We'll also talk about one of Amit's previous books on media and trauma and the connections between echo and trauma. And then we also talk about what it's like to be a humanities academic in Israel right now, where there's this, you know, right-wing coalition that's uh, trying to curb the power of the Supreme Court in these massive protests in the streets. And, and we also talk about the 2013 American Studies Association boycott against Israel for human rights violations against the Palestinian people. Um, it's a really wide-ranging conversation. For today's episode, I really just focused on the echo part for our main offering. But again, go to patreon.com slash phantom power if you want to hear the full conversation. Okay, here it is, my conversation with Amit Pinchevsky. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you loud and clear. It's a pleasure and an honor. I'm like a, an avid listener. Oh, man. And oh. Tell, I'm telling people all, all over about it. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, well, I really enjoyed your book and i very, very excited to talk about it. Thank you. Your new book, Echo, is out on MIT's Essential Knowledge series. It's this very compact small form factor book filled with valuable ideas and not densely written in terms of the prose. It's very lucid, but I mean, in terms of great ideas per page, I just think pound for pound, this is a, <laughs> this is a heavyweight <laughs> book. Um, uh, really en enjoyed it. And so maybe could you just talk a little bit about what is the goal with this book? What's the thesis of the book? Well, at some point, I wanted to write about Echo because I, th I, I felt it really co nicely combines things that I was interested in. Voice, sound, speech, media, ethics, relation, responsibility, all those things somehow I found kind of combines with, with Echo. But I didn't want to write a long book. What was attractive to me is to try to do a kind of a, an argument-driven book rather than a comprehensive account of a history of or something like that and it's really if you look at it in that way it's really a media philosophy of echo it's trying to figure out what kind of a medium echo is exploring echo 
as a media, as something that is as a phenomena, as a concept, the figure, the metaphor, all those things as something that is essentially trans- in the in-between, transpires in the middle. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, I would, I would say in terms of the argument, there is a kind of common reductive view of echo that I think mm-hmm. you're challenging. Um, and, right. and, and I really like how you sort of root this in Western history, Western philosophy into a sort of debate between Plato and Aristotle and in terms of like two differing versions of echo of mimesis. So could maybe you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. The purpose of this book, the argument that I'm kind of trying to advance, basically has to do with uh, redeeming echo or rediscovering echo. Uh, And this rediscovering echo, as I said, the the concept and the figure and, and, and the metaphor and the phenomena is creative rather than simply repetitive. Or even to say it better, perhaps is creative because repetitive. Mm. It, we, we're, you know, we, we tend to see repetition as something that brings back um, self-same, as redundant. And I, I was trying to show that repetition is actually um, immensely creative. And specifically because if you think of it, there's no such thing as mere repetition. Mm. Uh, complete, perfect repetition would be uh, imperceptible. We won't be able to, to perceive repetition if it had not been involved with certain difference, with certain delay, variance, and so forth. So that was a, a kind of a, a way to push the idea that repetition underlies create creativity and productivity. And so going back, you know, it's only customary to go back to the Greeks <laughs> and, and find everything starting with them. And, and, and echo is not, is not, is, is not, is no exception because if you go all the way with it, with the argument, it's like echo uh, um, compresses the, the dispute between uh, or distills the disputes between Plato and Aristotle about the nature of metaphysics. Uh, we all know, many of us know at least, Plato's Parable of the Cave, and it's it's, it's mostly uh, told as a, as a story about the shadows that stand for truth replicas. But it's interesting because in the Republic, it starts actually with echoes, not with shadows, uh, with prisoners sitting in, out, out inside, mistakenly hearing echoes as 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 original sounds yeah. and then <laughs> watching the shadows as the actual figures well there's a whole you can we can we go into a lot of like you know detailed debate whether what's the relation between shadows and echoes um but essentially the point is that we can find in plato the traditional reductive view that uh, echoes are Simple repetitions, they're reproductions of the same, and even worse, they're uh, replicas of the truth, and therefore 
not to be trusted. In, in Aristotle, we find something more interesting, I think. On the one hand, his idea of how we come to, to understand and know the world has to do with, um, with imitation. We, this is how we learn to do things. We, you know, we model ourselves according to something. So uh, repetition and imitation are actually um, the basis for knowledge and understanding. But he also has this idea from which we can trace back the whole idea of media and medium to this concept of metaxo, metaxi, mm -hmm. which is the in-between. And when he talks about the in-between, he, he brings in the, the case of echo, the, um, the, the acoustic echo, right? As something that moves in between and from one side to the other. I think this is a richer notion of echo that is not substandard to something, yeah. but is um, generative and productive. So I'm, I'm kind of, you know, siding with Aristotle and trying to um, tease out all those different cases, situations, contexts in which we can actually see echoing as creative and productive. Beautiful, beautiful. So with that in mind, how exactly would you define echo? The way that I, that I, that I begin uh, the book is by starting with a general working definition, uh -huh. say. Um, we started already saying that echo is necessarily in between, in the interval, yeah. right? In the midst of things. But other things can be there. So uh, the way that I define it is that echo is repetition plus response. So every, not all responses are repetitions, and of course not all repetitions are responses. But echo is necessarily both, both repetition and response. But then things become more complicated because the response is, by definition, delayed. It comes at a lag. Yeah. And repetition is never complete. It's partial or it's distorted. And here already we can see that in the, in the interval, there is also difference. There is also alterity. Yeah. Um, so both repetition and response, but delay and change. And to, and to just concretize this a little bit, maybe in terms of the, just the physics of echo, mm -hmm. um, when you say that there is repetition and difference, I mean, obviously there's kind of a Deleuzian thing uh, you're referring Absolutely. to here, but, but on a more concrete level, we're talking about this difference is an expression of the environment in which the initial sound was sounded, right? So there's a, when you're talking mm -hmm. about echo as medium, um, the echo is also mediated. The, the echo, the echo mm -hmm. is mediated by the space that creates it. And yet the echo itself is also a medium for the transformation of the initial sound. And would you kind of agree mm -hmm. with that summary? Yeah. And I would even, uh, 
Add to that that the echo is also a medium of the surroundings. I mean, mediating yes. the surroundings in which it in which it travels. It, in, in, it's a way that it, it's have, a way that we experience the space. So if we go to a yeah, canyon, yeah, we absolutely. we part of the way that we experience the knowledge that we are in a canyon is be as from the echoing in the canyon itself. So it's mediating that experience of canyonness. <laughs> Right. There's no echo without a holding environment allowing for it to transpire. So it's about the surrounding that it brings, that it makes manifest in taking place. Taking place is really important here because echo has to take place. It's of a place. So, and, and what it spells basically is that what, uh, what, what comes around is never what goes around, or what goes around is never what comes around, right? Right. right. Be- because, because what you send out has to rub against the surrounding, and when it when it turns around and comes back, it's already not the way you know it, you send yeah. it. It's already altered, and therefore it holds the potential for difference and for surprise and not 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 by uh, not, not it's not surprising that you know the the the, the traditional um, figure of echo was 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 viewed as as, as treacherous hmm. um, because you know sometimes it repeats what you expect it to repeat sometimes it repeats it differently yeah and you cannot really control it because it's out of your hands. Well, maybe we should talk about that a little bit more, the the sort of mythological figure or figures of echo. So like, uh, you know, in Ovid's uh, Metamorphoses. Mm -hmm. So Ovid, uh, it's interesting. It's a very famous story, of course, of of echo and how how echo, um, of course, a female figure, importantly, Mm -hmm. very importantly that it's a female figure, and the way echo became echo, and it's interesting if you if you read it uh, in the original Latin, I had to have some assistance doing that. But if you go into it, you can actually see very interesting things there, which are missed mm-hmm. if you consult the uh, tr- the uh, yeah. translations. What you what you see in the original Latin is that when echo repeats phrases, the repetition is varied uh-huh. and specifically that goes to the uh, story of uh, echo and narcissus so she falls in love with narcissus and she tries to draw his attention now she was punished for being uh for being uh, uh talkative too talkative mm-hmm. and and the punishment that she that she uh received by hera for 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 engaging with lo- in long conversations with her, while uh, while Jupiter was out philandering, uh, yes, with the nymphs <laughs> on the mountain. Yeah. So she she punished her because she was talkative. The punishment was that she would never be able to have her own voice, only repeat the last words of others. But again, when uh, when you see the kind of dialogue. In a way, it's a dialogue between her and Narcissus. 
So she's trying to draw his attention. And when he calls out, when she's like moving uh, across the, the, the forest, and so he calls out, who's out there? So she repeats, out there, or, you know, the Latin equivalent. And uh, when, when, when he calls out, let's get together, so she calls back, together. So she is controlling how much of her petition she's bringing back and how much she's holding back. So it's really interesting because she, she comes out as a, as a very uh, 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 um, deliberate figure who controls her speech, which is not hers. Yeah. Uh, and then she, of course, he, re- he rejects her narcissist. And she, uh, brokenhearted, she, her, her body disintegrates and her bones become into, turn into stones and mountains. So it's interesting because she starts the, the story as a voice and turns into sound. Yeah. She becomes as echo, as a figure, she becomes, becomes an echo. She, she becomes the phenomenon. Uh, and this is uh, this is a really interesting story to look at. Uh, both her and Narcissus are basically uh, media figures, like figures of reflection. Yes. He's enamored with his own reflection in the pond. She is hooked to his reflections back of his of uh, of his voice with her. And yeah, yeah. One of the one of the things that I. Th- your your interpretation really brings out nicely for me is that Hera is trying to take away Echo's agency, right? Hera is mad at Echo. So mm-hmm. Hera thinks she's denying Echo any agency by causing her just to repeat. And so we sort of get this crossfade from the voice as a site of agency and a site of the self to being just this acoustic phenomenon, the echo. But echo is still able to uh, evidence a kind of intentionality. It's still in there. Mm-hmm. And, and this is the bias that you're challenging is that when we, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this, I think later, I hope, but um, when we use echo metaphorically, particularly politically in terms of, you know, uh, decrying right-wing echo chambers or what have you, right? The right. idea is that pe- that's a space where people go to lose their agency. Um, but right. in fact, there is a lot of agency in the repetition of sound, of ideas, of memes, of what have you. That mm-hmm. the, In fact, like I, I might push as far as to say, and your book is is saying that actually all of the creative agency that we have actually resides in resounding things that came before. Mm-hmm. In, in a way, it says that, that, that creativity is never about pure originality, yeah. right? It's, uh, it's not, that's not what originality is about. Originality is about a certain way of repeating, and that's original. Yeah. <laughs> that's the origin also, <laughs> What about nature and culture? Because I feel like that's a really important theme in your book mm-hmm. as well. 
that echo tells us something about the relationship between nature and culture. Yeah, absolutely. And and the mutual transference, I think, especially when it comes to echo, if we even if we look at the figure of echo, mm. already it's a it's a it's a figure and it's a mythological figure and it's a natural phenomenon. And the the metamorphosis as you know as Ovid's stories is precisely about this transference from culture to nature and mm. backwards. Um, and I think this really correlates with the relation between sound and voice. Mm. Come to think of it, echo might be a broader category than that duality that we sometimes, you know, insist on between sound and voice, because echo is both. Or even better, what um, runs between and converts converts voice into sound and and vice versa if we think of the uh the process that uh, echo undergoes from speaking into echoing from voice to sound um when we talk about uh, language acquisition and this is a very controversial topic mm -hmm. but we actually undergo the opposite process. We start out as infantile, unable to speak, mm -hmm. right? As echolalia mm -hmm. or echolaliacs, <laughs> as repeating sounds, and then become eventually speaking uh, uh, agents, agents of speech, speaking selves. So that trajectory from sound to voice and from voice to sound is a very interesting one, and the way to, I think, to look at it is through the mediation of echo, because echoing is what, what allows that shift from one status to the other and back again. Yeah, um, that, is, that is really fascinating to think about language acquisition and that the echo actually comes first. You know, this, this baby yeah. babbling, repeating what it's mother says um mm -hmm. that, and 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 the the relationship to the other is primary in that Absolutely. so so the so the mm -hmm. the difference um is inherent in the repetition and and they it's not like the self is this originary source of utterances like the the other actually comes first the relationality comes first, which I think is fascinating, um, especially in, in terms of like current debates around AI, I think, because we have, mm -hmm. you know, this long new way of understanding the self that, that has been developing for quite some time now with, with AI researchers and so forth, or this idea, it's a very platonic idea that the that the ideas come first, right? And that the, there's a certain kind of processing, um, whether it's programming or now maybe neural nets, and that that's primary. It's kind of self-contained. And then it can be an actor. It can be agentive. It can be eventually artificial general intelligence. But what a lot of folks, you know, from maybe outside that field would point out is that there's so much tacit understanding environmental understanding mm -hmm. embodied understanding that 
um, allows us to be agentive in that way, to be thinkers in that way. And that there's no mm -hmm. basis for, <laughs> for a human like intelligence at the, to say the very least, perhaps any intelligence at all without all of that tacit stuff that, that we can't even explain ourselves because we learned it by echoing, by babbling, by mm -hmm. interacting with otherness in the environment. Mm -hmm. by, by being imbued in it, being part of it. Um, you, it's, it's, a, it's a phenomenological phenomenon rather than a, a, rather than, um, a, a cognitive. Yeah. Um, and also uh, another lesson perhaps here is that we're obsessed with like, you know, finding what, what's, what's the origin and what's the copy, whether AI can copy our abilities mm -hmm. or not, maybe surpass our abilities. Um, that's a very platonic way it of is. thinking. <laughs> but if, if we're, you know, echoing creatures, so there are different ways of, you know, being repetitive and creative, which is perhaps two sides of the, of the same thing. And we're, um, we're participating with other, other uh, uh, echoing creatures or entities, uh, mechanisms yeah. together. <laughs> which I think is lovely as long as we don't lose sight of, you know, I just, I think there's been this really reductionist as, as we've been discussing this whole time, our, our media technologies become our metaphors for ourselves. And I think mm -hmm. in the public discourse around AI, we're really losing sight of a lot of aspects of uh, that don't get captured by that particular metaphor that AI offers us. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think I would like to talk next about you. There's a, the second chapter in the book is called resounding. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's really cool because I'm always telling my students, we have to define our terms. Like, what are we actually talking about here? And I love the way this yeah. chapter thinks very deeply and precisely about what you call the resounding family, um, that mm -hmm. there are material and metaphorical differences between reflection, reverberation, resonance, and then echo. And then a lot of times we conflate mm -hmm. these things. That's right. Um, yeah. Could you talk a little bit about what you wanted to achieve with this chapter and maybe we can sort of tease apart those differences and, and the, their affordances? Yeah, sure. So first, as you said, it's kind of, you know, conceptual clarification. Um, so we know what we're dealing with because the, the metaphoric language tends to take over and then you can you see a lot of times people really conflate the resonance with echoing, with reverberation, with repetition, with a lot of other things that are quite different, certainly acoustically different. Yeah. But then when you follow it through, I think also metaphorically different and conceptually different. So it's a way first to cover a lot of ground in terms of like comparative analysis uh, conceptually, but also to bring out really what is distinctive to echo and to echoing. So it's all forms, I guess, of resounding of this, of the repetition and the reflection of sound. So the overall phenomena and, 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 and concept or notion is that of reflection of the returning 
of returning um, uh, um, sound waves. And that also goes, of course, to optics, which I don't really deal with, only very little, but reflections are optical and acoustic. Um, but still, I think, generally speaking, we have this bias when you talk about reflection, a visual bias when, when we talk about it. Um, and when you go back, you see that like in the 16th, 17th century, scholars were obsessed with, with sound reflections. That was the, what we call now sound, they're called echo. <laughs> because that was a way for them to, to, to try out, measure, determine how, how the phenomenon works. Uh, the, and, and, and what we call acoustics now, they called echometria. Hmm. Mm -hmm. um, in the 16th, and, and especially 17th century, people like Biancani and Mersenne and Kircher especially, they were like experimenting with reflection, with sound reflections and measuring the reflections and constructing all those weird kind of you know, structures from which different reflections come back and different parts of, 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 of speech come back. So you can actually manipulate echoes uh, Architecturally, yeah, and these are those strange constructions uh, that maybe people have seen images floating around on the internet. Yes, many walls at different lengths that a sound could be reflected back at different. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure it really <laughs> works if you actually try to construct. They look it, rather dubious to me. <laughs> they, yeah, but but the logic is interesting. Yeah. I mean, right? So di from di different distances would reflect in at, at different times different parts of what you cry, cry out towards that uh, construction. So that would have, would have been a way to, you know, to create a kind of, a, if you will, kind of, you know, something that's uh, an, an old um, uh, recorder yeah. <laughs> machine, right? So it brings back the sound from those, from the different walls. And, and uh, would you but say, would you, I, I would just, you're um, mentioning sort of like, what we would call sound, they would call echo. I mean, I think maybe some of us have heard uh, different scholars sort of remind us that there wasn't really this general category of sound that was widely Absolutely. used and that and that we would people would talk about voices, they would talk about music, mm -hmm. they might talk about noises. Um, but sound as this general category is a, is a somewhat modern invention. Uh, but you're saying that echo was actually the first time that they started to objectify something yep. other than music and yep. noise and, and voice. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's in the, well, already in Aristotle, but certainly in the, in the, in the 17th century, you can yeah. see that with Milsen um, uh, measuring the time of sound coming, uh, of voice, uh, you know, going back and forth, which was quite accurate when, when, when we look at, back at it. Um, but reflection really names the, 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 the general uh, phenomenon and notion. Um, when we try to kind of uh, to find what is distinctive about echoing, I think it's very um, important to differentiate between reverberation and echoing. Yeah. Um, both are reflections of sound, but reverberation is the prolongation of reflected sound. It's what you would have like the cathedral effect, right? So you, you, you hear the sound like, you know, um, continuing until full decay. And 
and this has kind of grandeur to it. Um, it's 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 lo- you need the structure or environment long enough to re- to to um, to enlarge the sound, so it would be perceived in that way. But when it starts to echo, it need it it, it requires a certain conditions for reverberation to turn into echo. So the distance from a reflecting object needs to be long enough, far enough, for echo to be perceived as repetition rather than enlargement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That takes 17 meters or roughly 55 feet. So that's psychoacoustically for us, that's the minimum time for us to perceive sound reflection as a repetition. Mm -hmm. Before that, we would take it psychoacoustically as reverberation as what we call like reverb right. as a as a sound as a sound uh, right. effect yeah so metaphorically also they're very different because reverberation again signals that kind of you know enlargement and 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 and, and grandeur whereas whereas echo opens up the whole uh, possibility of repetition and change and variation, which you don't get in reverberation. Reverberation is really reproduction of or prolongation of or the original emission. Mm. And then there is also resonance, which is different, but sometimes it's also being conflated yep. because resonance could be acoustical, but not necessarily. And the way that I approach resonance is that, in, in, like, um, uh, uh, the name itself is res- resounding, basically, resonance. Mm-hmm. But what it, what it um, points towards is a, is a situation or phenomena in which there is correspondence between uh, um, the triggering uh, 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 emission or frequency or whatever, and the reacting one. So two systems, one hitting another and uh, evoking in it, triggering in it something that is already there to a certain extent. So it resonates with something. So for something to resonate with something else, it has to have a certain predisposition Mm -hmm. towards it. A certain frequency, right, which is latent Mm -hmm. in it, for it to be activated from the outside that allows it so there is a, allows it to yeah, sympathetically so a, to sympathetically vibrate exactly. with that other yeah this is a, a, actually how how it's called it's sympathetic uh, resonance right so it's simp- it's it it activates something in it so there is a sense of repetition there but it's not time delayed repetition and it's a different kind of i guess relation one of correspondence rather than of repetition. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, it, well, there are resemblances because it's one family. I think it's really important to, to, to see uh, how echo is different because it has to be and has to do with what is going in between and is something that is necessarily across time and space. All of these reflections, of course, are sure. across space time and space. But I think echo is distinctive in that that it goes all the way. So it goes forth and back. It travels the whole mm. way. Rather than the other that are other 
situations, which it's one way part of the way. So it's full relation, basically. It's it's interesting because if, you know, I'm just thinking about the different political metaphorical valences of these things. And if, if Echo has somewhat been perhaps a bad object, I feel like, um, at least in leftist discourse, resonance has been a good object, right? I mean, we, we sort of talk about, right. oh, I really resonate with that. Or, or that mm-hmm. just in, in the culture, I feel like there's been a lot of talk lately of vibes or vibing. There was a, a big article about a, a, an alleged vibe shift that happened. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. you know, vibes can also be bad. And, and, and resonance can remind us of unwanted connection which is really kind of like what my my work is about with noise cancellation and these kinds of things it's right. um you know if you're if your apartment is resonating with the sound of somebody's uh you know playing trap music in the apartment next door or whatever and you don't feel like hearing that like that's not a good resonance for you so it's just mm-hmm. it's interesting to me how politically these these uh metaphors take on certain valences absolutely there's there is a, an important book by sociologist um, Hermut Rossa called Resonance. So it's kind of a critical theory, sociological critical theory, building on the on the notion of resonance is something that uh, you that's the that's the good that you would want to achieve, but the political so, uh, social conditions work against that. This kind of I would say. Um, Homeostasis, mm-hmm, perhaps, mm-hmm. balance between myself and the environment, myself and others, myself and, and 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 the world. So resonance is something that he considers as the as the good that is missing. Right, uh, and right. interestingly, he 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 refers to echoing as as a problem because it kind of um, um, postpones or perhaps even the gates, that possibility. And of course, I'm trying to um, redeem Echo. <laughs> it's, <laughs> right. it's showing showing that it's absolutely not necessarily the case. And even more than that is that with resonance, I think there's something a bit self-serving. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's about how I resonate with something or how something resonates with me. Yes. Whereas with echoing, I am given away to the other. And I am out of bounds in a way uh, because, you know, I'm echoing and therefore dependent on the outside. Oh, so that dependency, I think, is I like that so when, much. When we, when we lock up. I, I mean, yeah. that you just put your finger on something that really annoys me about the resonating discourse. It is, there is a yeah, certain yeah. narcissism to it. <laughs> mm-hmm, oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well, maybe I, you know we should maybe dive in a little bit deeper into this this uh, the, the sort of rhetoric, rhetoric of echoing. Yeah. Um, I don't know where this will go, but I, it, you kind of talk about, and I'm I'm glad you did because I, I I have to be honest as a a reluctant Twitter user, I never completely understood this whole thing with the echo symbols and uh i mean i knew it was some kind of anti-semitic online discourse but you kind of use it as a case study 
Um, and, and I'm really interested maybe if you could tell that story and what you learned about sort of like rhetorical echoes from, from taking this on as a, as a case study. Yeah. So I, I, I was trying to look at, um, at echo from different angles. So we can talk about echo as kind of, you know, as, as poetic, as a kind of a repetition that, you know, is creative as you would find like in mm -hmm. poems that try to bring out the, this kind of, you know, effect of uh, creative effect of, of, uh, of repetition of sound. But also it goes back to rhetoric in which we know, of course, repetition in, in, in rhetoric is very important. It's never simply redundant, right? What, what you repeat is yeah. very important. Um, and I found this case that was most emblematic, I think, to me, because it's... It's about uh, uh, a case of, um, uh, I would say, it's kind of a, of, of, a, of a signaling uh, in of uh, anti-Semite discourse. So uh, it started with some right-wing podcast. I can't remember the name of the podcast, I'll, but it. Uh, uh, um, and and what they did is they they cried uh, or they expressed like Jewish names on on the podcast vocally and added to it uh, a sound effect of echo, right? So it's like the names were echoing literally and they were saying, oh, you see, this is like they are chasing us from the past, this like those Jewish names. And it had to do with some Holocaust denial issues and, and so forth. So, so that, so uh, that just to be clear, so, so actually the, these, and, and, for those who don't have no idea what we're talking about here, we're talking about how online people were taking uh, Jewish surnames and um, mm -hmm. putting these parentheses, yeah, triple, triple parentheses, parentheses around them. So I did not realize right. um, until until I read this book that it started off actually as a, a echo sound effect on this podcast. Yes, it is. Okay. Yeah, it's crazy. So it sound it started as a sound effect, and then uh, for for those listening, of course, to the podcast, and then it 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 traveled online, uh, especially on Twitter, and then it kind of converted from an from a vocal or or sonic effect in, into a textual one. And instead of the repetition, the sonic repetition, it became this triple parenthesis, uh, kind of hugging Jewish names. And that was for those in the know, because not, not everybody knew that that was the intention. When that kind of broke out uh, in a kind of a, in, in, uh, on, on, on uh, news items, uh, that was what happened, I think, was completely unanticipated by those who had came up had come up with this with the with the symbol what happened is that uh, uh, users uh, twitter users jewish and non-jewish claimed that symbol and started using it for their own names and others names so they echoed <laughs> that textual echo and subverted the meaning so it it started out as pejorative and then it was reclaimed and became a symbol of 
uh, of solidarity, yeah. basically, right? So that's like I'm spotless <laughs> effect, right? So if 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 somebody is being named as something, so we're all identifying the same way, and therefore we're like standing with those that are you know um, singled out. So this is a, this is a, a an, an amazing kind of turn of, of events in which like acoustical sound effect of echo transforms into textual one and becomes echo and then becomes echoed rhetorically echoed by other users that turn the original meaning around and instead of being a kind of you know an antisem- antisemic uh, uh, category is reclaimed as sign of solidarity yeah and i think you know, you're kind of putting your finger on a very common phenomenon in online discourse, which is people sort of take on whatever um, thing that they were interpolated as. They they sort of, you know, repeat it mm-hmm. back and 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 take a sort of proud form of ownership over it. And, and at least that's one of the tactics of echoing that we see online. One of my favorite quotes in the book, you write... This case exemplifies the rhetorical effect of echoing and the way repetition allows superseding the original message. This is because echoing always transpires against a specific background and context. While ostensibly repeating the same thing, echo actually brings out the changing conditions of uttering and in so doing makes the original message susceptible to new meanings. I think you've explained this phenomenon that we maybe all have sensed online in in a in a really lovely and lucid way. There, yeah, I think this this point actually holds to all the cases in the book that that it's it's it it, it brings out the echo brings out the context, brings out the situation in which it occurs, and here again I think we can see again the duplicity of mm. echo because it, echo basically is really about duplicity, yeah. um, because we, we find all this discourse about echo chambers as, of course, as the ultimate evil nowadays, right? It's This is where, every, if you have to, to, to pinpoint where everything is going wrong with today's politics, this is one of them, right? And I, and, and if, if we really, you know, take echo to be duplicitous, I mean, has to faces two aspects to it so there's one that is treacherous mm-hmm. right that you cannot control but it has the other side of repetition as as that effect of like i'm spartacus i'm standing with someone i'm endorsing something i'm acknowledging and repeating yeah. something so echo is not all bad i mean it it's it has to have something of, well, it has to do with 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 uh, mobilizing, with standing with, with identifying with something. Uh, there's no politics without echoing. Uh, this is how we gather together and 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 become, you know, politically engaged. Of course, not all echoing is politically engaged, right. and I wouldn't want to live in a situation where. There is in a huge echo chamber, but this is where things are more complicated because echo is not either good or bad. 
It's about the context. Yeah. It's about where it happens and how it happens. And this is why I think echo is such an echo and echoing is such an, an interesting phenomenon because it really has to do with a specific context. Yeah. And, and this um, brings me, I, there was a question that I wanted to ask you very early on in our conversation and it's just come back to me. You mentioned how it was very important that echo was a female figure and, right. um, and I think part of the work you're doing in this book is at, at least uh, one of the sub arguments is that there is a feminist argument for Echo, uh, mm-hmm. a, a sort of other focused relational conception of creativity instead of this, you know, singular autonomous originary force where sound comes from. Um, right. Could you maybe talk a little bit about that? And maybe uh, I believe you you mentioned Kristeva in that context, but also you you brought forward some uh, Native American conceptions of echo that I that I thought were rather interesting as well. Yeah, I, I mean, there's a whole gender issue that really goes as we uh, we started with Narcissus and Echo, right? So yeah, the the, the male centered and uh, self obsessed figure. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to the female, other-oriented, relational figure. And I, I think that kind of follows through with a lot of like um, uh, um, discussions around and reference to echo, because it's secondary, hmm. right? And if you associate it with like with kind of, you know, the female figure, I think you can actually turn this around because there. It's secondary, but there's nothing secondary about being secondary. It's originary because it's relational. That's the beginning of everything. This, the obsession with, 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 uh, with uh, self-creation, with the uh, logocentrism, mm-hmm. right? Or the follow logocentrism. Mm-hmm. So echo is, 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 I think, is very powerful in skewing and unsettling all that because it's it might be not uh, immediately perceptible how it works but because it has to do with the relation rather than with the content right or with the message it's about the relation that takes place rather than what is said yeah it's not about um, the transmission of this, information exactly exactly it's about the relation, and it's about the relation, which means that this is what comes, what what comes first, and what what ultimately counts. It's, it's, it it reminds me um, of you know phatic language, right? Like, yeah, you say hi, mm-hmm. I echo hi back, and right. these are meaningless utterances in a sense. There's really no information being transmitted, but a relationship is being established. Absolutely, phatic. Phatic communication is the basis of all communication. And the minute the phatic communication uh, fails, there is no communication. We need to recreate it. We need to, we need to, we need to uh, uh, um, um, recreate the channel, right? Yeah. Yeah. Fix yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, restore it. Um, and I think this also brings out what is um, taken for granted or even more than taken for granted, is something that underlies is the condition of possibility of what we might call, right, the message and the back and forth. 
But that's the, the actual back and forth <clears throat> is not about the message. It's about the possibility of a relation. And we start out as relational beings, right? As like, you know, echoing and being echoed. Mm. Um, and that perhaps is the most important relation that we have that models us later on, models our relationships mm -hmm. with others. What's important there is not what is what was said, right? What is being what has what was repeated, right. but the act of repetition itself. Yeah. Um, I think this is a very important, really um, insight. It comes from Kristeva and, and other feminist scholars that that push against that kind of you know originary fixation, and 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 try to go and convincingly towards the idea of response and responsibility. And here I completely see how Levinas aligns with that, with that conception. He too foregrounds relation. Mm -hmm. He calls it the saying rather than the said. So the relation rather than discourse. Not that it's not important. Of course it's important, but if you want to um, look at things in a more kind of, you know, um, 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 uh, uh, profound situation, profound understanding, it has to do with the relation. And that's my conversation with communication theorist Amit Pinchevsky. There's a whole lot more to be heard. Just go to patreon.com slash phantom power. You can hear us uh, consoling one another over what the right wing is doing in our respective countries <laughs> and much, much more. Yeah, it, it's more fun than I make it sound. <laughs> and that's also it for this 50th episode of Phantom Power. Thanks for being along for the ride. And if you want to send some feedback that just can't fit into your review at ratethispodcast.com slash phantom, send me an email. My email is mac, M-A-C-K, at mactrasound, that's M-A-C-T-R-A-S-O-U-N-D dot com. Today's music is by Graham Gibson. Have a lovely, chill summer. You deserve it. And I'll talk to you later. <laughs>